You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the train track enclosed nerve center that's the headquarters of the office of cable TV, film, music, and entertainment. It's also the historic headquarters of black entertainment television, so it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of DC. If you don't follow us already, you've missed the boat. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for average residents to understand what the council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the DC council is just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Listeners, we're working our way through recording four rounds of interviews with council members. They're available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Those focused mainly on getting to know the council members' backgrounds, successes, struggles, and the people who shape and surround them. In this latest fourth round, we're broadening things out, tackling issues that interest the council members and me. So now, without any further ado, let me introduce uh, our guest today, at-large council member David Grasso. Hey, Josh. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm looking forward to the, uh, I believe this is our fourth round. Uh, Absolutely. It is the fourth round. Thanks so much again for being generous with your time. And uh, the topic you selected uh, for us to tackle today was trauma-informed education. And I think there's a bunch of old-timers listening who probably are saying, trauma-informed education, I remember that. When I misbehaved in school, the teacher would hit me. Um, That is not what (laughs) trauma-informed education is. No, that is not it. Um, It's actually quite the opposite. And I didn't mean to make light of it, but I couldn't help myself. Um, Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what what trauma-informed education is? Because it's, I think it's something a lot of folks probably have not heard the first thing about. I think trauma-informed education is just a catch-all for trying to understand what we need to do to put every student in the best position to succeed in her education efforts. So what we've recognized uh, over the past four and a half years since I've been the chairperson of the Committee on Education is that there are a lot of things that we can do in the school building every single day to improve education. Quality of teachers, quality of curriculum, uh, literacy supports, math supports, science, all these things you can do academically that are really important and will help us move the needle on success academically in our city. But there's a big part of this that we've come to realize that isn't as directly academic as it is the sort of support services that students need to be successful. And we know now after many years of brain science and studying the development of a child's brain that when a child experiences adversity, 
especially at a very young age, but all throughout her life, uh, the adversity sometimes can put barriers to learning up that are hard to overcome and hard for her then to be in the classroom uh, studying and learning and engaging in her education. So trauma-informed approach is the approach that says we recognize that you may have gone through some adversity in your life. We are going to see the various clues that you give us and we're going to address them and then we're going to help you get what you need to move past that and some may be more extreme than others but the reality is that until you get that child out of the flight or fight mode of what trauma does to a child's brain uh, you are not going to have a child who is fully engaged in her education in order for her to ultimately be successful and so we have invested a ton of effort in the committee on education on these wraparound type services that are so important for a child to be successful when she presents herself in the classroom to learn. Now, in these round four interviews, um, we were letting the council member pick the topic, um, but to make it not turn into a kind of an infomercial, I'm finding myself a lot playing a devil's advocate role. Um, And I definitely want to emphasize that uh, I'm not expressing my own views, the views of the council or you know, I'm just doing a little pushback to keep it interesting and and, uh, and worthwhile. Um, many would say that that DC public schools have just gotten past, thank God, have just gotten past the point where the roofs aren't leaking and the textbooks are showing up on time. Trauma-informed education sounds like a very new, subtle, nuanced, complicated, uh, cutting-edge form of education. If folks feel that DCPS is struggling with maybe the kind of education that we had growing up, what would lead us to think that they're ready to implement something like trauma-informed education? I I believe that this really comes for me out of a a drumbeat by many, many people about the achievement gap in our city. Uh, You have uh, reports now through the testing that we do every single year that shows that um, African-American students are not having the same achievement as white students across the city. And when you begin to break down what the difference is besides race, which is incredibly important to address, you also see that there are living circumstances that make it harder uh, for a student who grows up in poverty, who grows up in a violent community, to engage in school. And I have been convinced, and it has not been something that I came to lightly, uh, but through research and meeting with advocacy organizations like the Children's Law Center, um, I have been convinced that you will not ever close the achievement gap, the opportunity gap, whatever you want to call it, until you address the trauma and adversity that students are experiencing on a daily basis. And I'll give an example of what I mean. The When I first came in, everyone was talking about early childhood literacy, right? Literacy is the solution. If we have every student reading and writing by the time she's in fourth grade, then we'll solve all of our education problems. Well, there's a lot of validity to that. There's a lot of science that shows that that's very, very, very important. And in fact, in the committee, Along with my committee staff, we were able to invest dollars in an early literacy intervention program at the Office of the State Superintendent of Education. We put $1.6 million a year towards literacy supports. Boom. The Literacy Lab reading partners now involve themselves in all of our schools and support students that are behind on reading. 
That is not a very complicated approach. It's not nuanced. It's just literally doing the kind of hardcore one-on-one work you have to do to get a student reading. In my mind, that was a fairly straightforward solution to a really important problem. Well, what happened was very quickly we realized that that wasn't solving the problem like we thought it was going to solve the problem. And we had to dig a little deeper and understand what the real core of the challenge was. And so we began to understand that with brain science and with understanding that adversity being experienced at a young age, these ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, um, that students were just simply not capable at that moment in time to be able to focus enough to learn, to engage, and to be a part of their education. And so we had to do everything we could at that point to tackle the harder question. And since I personally and my Committee on Education can't solve poverty, I can't completely end racism, then what I need to do is find the ways that I can engage. And so we've tried to increase school-based mental health programs. We've tried to decrease the amount of push-out that happens through adverse disciplinary actions against students. We've tried to increase school safety policies that address when a student has been assaulted, what you do and why you, why you do what you do. All of these things piled in together and the literacy sports and the quality teachers and the stability in the principal's position gives the students a real opportunity to shine and to show what she can do. And we know that she can do it. We know that it's possible because so many students have been successful. So many people have been successful in spite of the adversity, in spite of the challenges, the poverty, the violence, all those things, they still do it. They still are amazing to come up out of that. But what I'm saying is as, as a government, as the government with a $13 billion budget in the District of Columbia, we have an obligation to do more to support these students at a higher level, to give them the kind of therapy, the kind of intervention, the kind of support that they need to be successful in the classroom and to ultimately, as a result, be successful in life. Now you spoke, you got to it a little bit at the end, but you spoke mostly about the need for these services. And my question was about the capacity with a school system that can struggle with the basics and your the school system that can struggle with a hundred hundred uh, level uh, coursework, you're asking them to provide three and four hundred level coursework, like well, true Josh, cutting not, edge, I'm difficult not, services. Um, do, do you think they're up to the challenge? I don't think there's a question of whether or not they are. I think they are up for the challenge. I think they have to be. And I think if they're not, then we need to kind of rework our workforce to make sure that they are and train them and give them the supports they need to be ready. And we're doing that. Uh, But let's let me go back a little and tell you how I'm doing this, because it's important to the conversation. We didn't create a school based mental health task force at DCPS or at the Public Charter School Board, we have done this at the Department of Behavioral Health. And what I'm trying to do is get all the other agencies, the Department of Health, the Department of Behavioral Health, MPD, all of them involved in a trauma-informed approach that really believes in school-based mental health services. And so, uh, for example, our school-based mental health task force has now become a full council that actually has agency heads, it has advocacy, it has our community-based organizations, everybody at the table on a regular basis meeting to figure out how to build the capacity so that the schools are not just put on with all of the responsibility that it takes to do this work. And so somebody like Mary's Center, for example, has been at the forefront of trying to provide 
provide school-based mental health services for our youth in the city. How do we help them grow? How do we help give them the money and the resources and other things and the supports to actually grow into an organization that serves more students, along with a lot of others, right? There are a lot of these CBOs out there. So what we've done in the first year that we did this, we were able to cobble together some money, millions of dollars, $3 million, to expand services. This year, the mayor pulled together a little bit more, and the council threw a little bit more. So we're up to $9 million a year now that we're investing in these wraparound services. But let me be very clear. These all are for, all these services are for our youth. They're for them to be able to be successful in the classroom. It's not, though, a burden on the teacher or on the principal or on the administrators in the building because they already have enough to do. Like you said, they already have to be experts at what they do. This is to try to expand services within the building and outside the building in community-based organizations, locations, to give the students the love and the care that they need to be successful while in the, the teacher's classroom. But that doesn't mean that the teacher shouldn't also be trauma-informed, right? Because right now, when a student acts out, has a bad day, is throwing a temper tantrum or something of that nature, the teacher may or may not already be trained to handle that, to understand it. Um, but no matter what, we want all the teachers to be able to have the tools to be compassionate, to be loving towards that child, regardless of how that child is acting. And that is not easy to do, but it is so impactful. The last thing we want to do is create more adversity for a child when she shows up to school and acts out, right? Uh, and there are a lot of ways to do this. You can do it uh, through meditation, through restorative practices, through trauma-informed. There's a lot of ways that we can actually engage with a student's mind in a way that shows her that she is uh, in control of her own emotions and can be able to control her own emotions such that she can learn every day. And if i'm if i'm remembering this correctly students who are receiving services like this are uh, intermingled in classes and schools with folks who are not receiving these services that's correct and they should be uh, this is this right, is that, not a, you don't wear this on your sleeve right this is not when right. you experience adversity you you know more often than not you're dealing with it on your own and what i'm saying is you shouldn't have to right and 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 research has shown that folks do better intermingled Absolutely. I mean, whether it be just uh, the trauma that students experience or even a higher level need, a, a special need that's at a higher level, uh, the kind of commingling, the joint education is good for everybody. It's not something that you, you don't want to have it separated out unless there's a violent, in, in, you know, that violence that could be involved. Um, you really don't want to do that. Right. And, and I think that... Um there's a real opportunity for, for um, kids to learn from each other, kids at, at different academic levels and at different adversity levels to, to be able to pick up from, um, to learn from each other. I think that's true. I mean, and, and there has to be, though, real understanding and a real policy and training in place so that uh, the students that are in the classroom together learning are not disruptive of one another, that they, they can actually be uh, genuine partners in their education. And when a student is disruptive, uh, we have to handle that. We can't just let it go. It has to be real consequences. There has to be a way to hold that student accountable for whatever act she committed, whether it be throw a chair or get into a fight or scream at the teacher. Uh, these are things, though, that we should be like indicators of what's going on in her life, right? And I know of a story where a student was acting out big time uh, in, in the school. 
um, doing some very, very dangerous things with fire. And the student um, would normally have been thrown out of the school for the amount of stuff that the student was doing. Um, but the principal and the assistant principal have been trained in trauma-informed approach and trained in alternative to discipline other than just suspension and expulsion and sat down with uh, trained professionals, with therapists, with people that understood what they were doing to meet with this student, to know what it is that's happening in her life, that she would be like this. And they discovered that there was a very serious adverse experience that she had experienced in the past few months that no one knew about. And once they were able to get to the bottom of that, they were able to support her in a more meaningful, loving way. And rather than just push her out on the street and tell her, go deal with it, where she then has to do fight or flight modes of survival for the rest of her life, they were able to intervene in her life in a positive way, give her the love she needed to be successful, and now she is a successful student and an active participant in the classroom. Uh, That's all I'm saying is that let's stop pushing our kids out and stop dismissing them and just letting them fall through the cracks and let's show them more love and care. And, you know, Josh, this comes down, I think, to a fundamental societal problem that we have. I think it's too easy in our society, I don't know if it's capitalism or what it is, but it's too easy for us to separate people into categories and say some are more worth it than others. And more often than not, that's a racial demographic. It's your race that makes you more worth it to care about you than a person who's different than you. And I think that's been a problem in our education system for centuries, and it's something that is gonna take a long time to undo. Um, But whether it's the just straight up racial bias that we all have and take to our workplace, including teachers, or it's the expectation levels that you have for students and their ability to succeed in the classroom, there are biases that need to be eliminated. You're not going to do that if you don't go through the kind of training that I'm talking about because a trauma-informed approach there positions positions you better to see the child as as a human being who deserves the same love and respect as every other human being in this city and in this school system. And and when you finally do that, then you start to see students shine. Um, The schools that do it best um, uh, are the ones that are the most successful academically, have the least number of suspensions and expulsions, and have the most inviting, warm community that you've ever experienced. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're you know you're you're coming at it from sort of a demographic lens which which makes a lot of sense but to come at it from a just sort of everything i needed to know i learned in kindergarten lens people do things for reasons you know that the example you gave about the kid who was starting fires and when the principals asked questions like think about the people in our in our lives our family members or coworkers Generally, when they're doing something nuts or they, you know, uh, lash out at you or say something mean to you or generally there's a reason, you know, it it doesn't, it, it, it rarely excuses the behavior, rarely excuses the behavior, but it frequently explains the behavior. And if you get to the bottom of it, you find out they had a terrible day at work or they got some bad health news they didn't want to tell you about or something. You know, there's something behind it. And if we don't take the time to find that out, and then a lot of times if you cure the underlying reason, you can cure the bad behavior. Um, But if you just double down, you know, oh, you're acting up, I'm going to double down, act up, and I have authority and you don't have authority, so you're out of here, kid, you're in the street, 
where guess what? Something else bad's going to happen to you. Right. And you're only going to be double as likely to act up. You know, um, it, it takes sort of a higher level intelligence and sort of ice in your veins to ask, why is this person doing this terrible thing? Even in our own personal relationships, yep. to, to not just kind of fall for that and double down and give back what you're getting. But what I'm saying, Josh, you I know, think it's really important to underline this and why I bring race into it is that um, if you're in my position growing up, a white middle-class person whose parents went to college and the expectation was that I would also follow in their footsteps and do that, um, when I'm the one acting out, and, and I did, trust me, act out a lot, um, people still don't ask you why, right? No one said, what happened to you? Why, why are you acting out? Um, but the expectation was still such that I would get through it and that I would be worth it for me to continue to get another chance and another chance and another chance until I finally was convinced to go to college much later in life, etc. When you're a person of color, when you're a black kid and when you're a Latino kid in this city or wherever in this country, it's not there. You don't get that second chance. You don't get that third chance. You don't have the extra expe expectation normally. And so it, we're both starting in the same position. We had adversity, right? I had a tremendous amount of adversity when I was in middle school. And perhaps maybe a kid growing up in Congress Heights, too, had that same adversity. The difference for me, though, is... Who is going to be the one that asks the child in, in Congress Heights, well, what are you up to now? Are you going to be successful? You can be successful in school. You can be successful moving on in life. And there are people like that, and they're, they're just far and few between in our society that actually go out on a limb like they do at places like Life Pieces to Masterpieces or Critical Exposure or Black Swan and pick these children up and say, you're worth it. What I want is a city and an education system that trains all of us how to do that, that trains everyone how to do that and removes the lens of bias, the horrible bias, racial lens that we all have as much as we possibly can so that we see the value in every child enough to know that even though she's had adversity in her life and she's acting out, she's worth it for us to only not only ask the question like you're saying, which is incredibly important, what happened to you? Right. And then be able to also know that she needs our support and love to continue to move through that with the mental health services we can offer, with the supportive hug, with the, you know, the second and third chance in life. Um, and that's why I passed the Student Fair Access to School Act, which basically says you cannot suspend and expel students anymore up until eighth grade. And, you know, after eighth grade and ninth through 12th grade, you can do it. But you can't do it if they're just late to school, if they have a uniform violation or for willful defiance, because those things are just too subjective. They're too student based, subjective approaches that I don't agree with. So we now have that as a law in the District of Columbia. Now, a lot of teachers and a lot of principals were, are and should be very nervous about that law because you're telling me that a sixth grader acts out. You can't suspend her. You can't throw her out on the street anymore. You have to deal with it. So we have to do more investments in trauma-informed approach in the mental health services that I'm talking about today in order to give them the tools and resources to invest in these students when they're not pushing them out on the street. Where is, um, if any, the pushback? coming from? Are you getting pushback from, I mean, you mentioned a, a little bit where the, maybe the, the uh, principals could be getting uh, nervous, but are you getting pushback from the administration? Are you getting pushback from uh, unions? Are you getting pushback from teachers, principals, parents? Um, it's, it's just, this is one of those issues where 
everyone says that they support it. <laughs> and that's great. Uh, people want to provide more mental health services. They want to remove bias. They want to be invested. Um, the challenge I think we have is how much do you want to support it? And when the rubber hits the road. Uh, it's about the money, and it's about investing the real dollars. And I think the mayor has been a big supporter of this. Mayor Bowser, I think, understands it. She and her team know it's important. Uh, but they have a ton of priorities across the city, and they aren't making this the number one priority yet. I think it's imperative that we make it the number one priority. I think it should be the number one priority right now. We should be investing more money in this than anything else, uh, simply because the future of our city depends on it. These are our leaders of the future. We have to make sure they have a quality education, that they have their mental health in order if we want a city that is going to be successful into the future. We can't continue to punt. We can't continue to let this just go to another day. These students are not attending school. Our attendance rates are extremely low. Our grades are low. Why? Not because we don't have a great system that cares about them, but because we aren't trained in trauma-informed practices, implementing restorative practices to give every student actually a fair opportunity to winning. Now, what would you say to cynical, grouchy, terrible people that say um, life isn't trauma-informed? Even if you did a great job and you give people you know, uh, whatever, 12 years of, of wonderful trauma-informed education, uh, they come out and they hit the real world and they're just, uh, you know, a lot of folks struggle coming out of D.C. public schools when they get to university. Um, what would you say to folks that, that your life is not trauma-informed, they're just going to be set up for failure when they hit, uh, you know, the real world? I mean, that I think is, no disrespect, but an incredibly weak argument. Uh, You know, the fact is that once you have... I'm just trying to throw out double advocates. I I understand. You know, know, the reality is that these students, when given a fair opportunity to actually engage in their education through a trauma-informed approach because we're not subjecting themselves to them to exclusionary discipline, we're not treating them like they're not worth it, um, we'll put them in a position to succeed. Uh, You know, the, the most successful school support program that I've heard of is a organization in DC called Posse. Um, and Posse is an organization that uh, gives students money for college, but then wraps uh, the entire organization around every single student in such an amazing way that when you fall down, you're picked up. And when you mess up, you're given another chance until you're successful. And uh, I'm not saying that this is a one size fits all easy approach. This is about being more informed, being in a better position to understand a student's adversity, and then having the tools to support her once you understand that. When she goes off into life, there's going to be adversity. Does she have the tools to address that diverse adversity when she needs to? Yeah, and the reality is she'll be a hell of a lot better equipped than she would have been That's right. if she'd gotten kicked out of school and Well, we know that because how many students do we have who are out on the streets right now in D.C. who are struggling, who got kicked out of school and never finished high school because we didn't give them another chance? Right. The the school hard knocks is a a cool expression, but... It doesn't work. Right. School is, you know, probably better than that. Yes. So, um, okay. We only have one quick uh, closeout question this time because I I was struggling with a good closeout question. Um, so anyway, I'm going to list a couple things you can do with your phone, which you have right there, and I want you to tell me in order what you uh, are most attached to to least attached to. The actual phone part of the phone, like talking on the phone, texting, emailing, social media. What are you most attached to down to what are you least attached to out of those four? 
phone, um, email, text, I have to pick media. one of those four because the one thing I'm most attached to is following sports scores. I keep up with uh, baseball scores, basketball, hockey, everything on it. And now that it's got uh, HD video on it, I mean, it's amazing. I can be in a meeting and watching the Capitals play in the playoffs, and no one even really knows what I'm doing. You it's would brilliant. never do that. Oh, absolutely. Certainly not at a council meeting. But I use text more than anything on text it. I, I text a lot on it. I do social media some, too, and I hardly ever talk on the phone, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Okay. Well, I'd like to not have a phone. Is that possible? It'd be great. I'd like people to come knock on my door and say, hey, council member, do you have a minute? Because, man, these phone things, I think, are over overblown uh, in their value. Uh, it's true. We, we are awfully attached. Um, we could get you a clamshell. A clamshell. Certain, certain other, uh, <laughs> oh. other council members have been known to, to do the old clamshell phone. Um, okay. Well, uh, sadly, we, we are out of time once again. Uh. Um, but... Uh, Thank you again, Councilmember. Thanks for being generous with your time. And thank you, listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us. Tune in again next time. We're at DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. <laughs>